Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right. Our special guest this week is Sarah Longwell, the distinguished publisher of The Bulwark. And what a difference 24 hours make. The midterms are, of course, the big story this week. I have to say, I was kind of gobsmacked by the results. Honestly, there's so much to discuss that it makes my job easy. I'm going to ask all of you for your reactions. And I want to start with Sarah. Sarah, what about the fate of some of the worst Republican candidates that Trump had uh, backed? Yeah, guys, good day for democracy. It's not over yet. Yeah. There's still a long way to go. I heard around the uh, the bulwark you know, block that it was positively funereal over here on Beg to Differ last week. But I got to tell you, over on the focus group pod in a different corner of the bulwark, uh, I was a little more bullish, I think, in part because in talking to the focus group, the swing voters over the last, you know, three months or so, there was a very clear pattern in the swing states, which was these swing voters were like a lot of them are center right. They were pretty down on Biden. They weren't wild about the Democrats, but they really, really disliked the individual candidates. They saw them as too extreme, sometimes because of abortion or because of the election denialism or just kind of the whole package. And I, you know, was pretty hopeful about a couple places that came through. So, you know, Wisconsin, Evers holding on there, Whitmer just absolutely crushing in, in Michigan, Mastriano going down really hard to Josh Shapiro by, I think, like 13 points in Pennsylvania. And that governor gets to appoint the secretary of state. You know, for me, it was always about who's going to certify 2024. Will we have a bunch of election deniers in governor's seats in, in secretary of states who are going to oversee elections? And for Wisconsin, for Pennsylvania, for Michigan, and for the Republicans in Georgia with Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp, we now have a bunch of contested states that have people that we can be confident are going to certify elections. And that is just a huge win. Yeah. Damon, another thing that was really uh, just such a huge relief about this uh, midterm was, first of all, everything was orderly. People voted. There have been, oh, I mean, a hand, maybe a, one or two people who have refused to concede their losses. But for the most part, you know, people actually conceded their races. Dr. Oz did. Uh, Stacey Abrams did. J.D. Vance defeated uh, Tim Ryan. And Tim Ryan gave a beautiful statement about the importance of in a democracy of the losers conceding their losses. So that was kind of refreshing too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a remarkable day and especially evening last night. Uh, I, you know, maybe we're not supposed to usually refer to actual dates and time because we want people to listen to the podcast into the future and not be hemmed in here. But of course, we are talking about Tuesday, uh, November 8th and the election. And uh, the whole day became kind of more magical as it went on. And it has continued into the following day as more races have come in. And as you said, lots of people conceding in the way that you're supposed to concede. You're, you know, I, and this sort of hits on some of those themes that, uh, that Tim Ryan mentioned in his concession speech, that you concede the race because you know that the other side winning isn't going to be the end of the world and you're going to be back. There's going to be another election in a little while and then you'll get another chance. And this really has vindicated that a lot. It felt like a really normal day and a normal process. Now, of course, if you're the Democrats, it was very uh, cheering. And if you're a Republican, you have a lot of reasons to be sad about it. But once again, you know, in, in two years, we're going to do this whole thing again, along with a presidential election. And the more that we can reaffirm that, okay, 
not everyone, uh, even on the Republican side, is is as crazy as the craziest man of all, Donald Trump. And our, uh, you know, people are willing to to lose and walk away like grownups. That was very uh, very nice to see uh, reaffirmed. It is a little sad that we got to a point where that needs to be affirmed, since I considered that my entire adult life to be a given. That that's what American democracy is all about. Uh, you kind of start there, and then you you have fights about who who should win, what vision of the common good we believe in, and duke it out over those things. But all with the kind of background assumption that you know that this is there. There is no apocalypse at the end of the next vote. We have our contest. We have our fight. Then we go away like grownups, and we come back and do it again two years later. So. Yes, I'm I'm in a good mood today, and it isn't entirely because uh, a lot of the candidates I support did well, although that helps. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, let me sketch two sides of the coin. So in one sense, this is bad. That is, the GOP Congress will now have, in absolute terms, more election deniers than it had on January 6th, 2021. So that's not good. But on the other hand, I mean, the whole vibe coming out of yesterday, first of all, the fact that, you know, for example, J.D. Vance thanked a whole bunch of people in his uh, in his victory speech. He didn't thank Trump. A lot of people are saying this is a very, very bad night for Trump. And the, uh, the, the sense that one gets is that the worst thing you could have been on Tuesday night was one of the crazies that Trump had introduced into American politics. So how do you think that shakes out? Well, first of all, I'm really uh, quite pleased with the outcome of the election. Look, I'm still a conservative. I still favor uh, Republican policies, uh, by and large, certainly on economic Where do you find them, Linda? I know. Well, that's the point. (laughs) But what I see coming out of this is that you're going to have a, I think, very narrow majority uh, for the Republicans in the House, which means they probably will not be able to do great harm. They are not going to be able to, you know, for example, they were talking about impeaching uh, not just Joe Biden, but also Merrick Garland. And, you know, they, they were going to do some really crazy Mallorcas. Yes. Yeah. My, yeah ev- yes. So that's not going to happen. And so I think that's good. And the same holds uh, for the Senate. I mean, it looks like, you know, it's going to end up being again a 50-50 uh, Senate. So all of that means that we're going to have to see some moderation on the wildest schemes of both sides, but particularly the Republican side. They're not going to be able to go wild and go crazy. So I think all of that is good. And I think what Sarah said is the most important. It is those important governor's races, particularly in battleground states, where if the Republican had won, there would have been much more chance that come 2024, we could see again games being played uh, with the presidential election. And Donald Trump did have a bad day, not least because his, uh, you know, favorite governor in in the country, uh, Ron DeSanctimonious, as he likes to call him, not only won, he won really big. And uh, it's clear that that is going to, you know, give him ideas about maybe expanding uh, his sights and running for the presidency. And he's not going to be deterred by Donald Trump. And he is much more popular in Florida than Donald Trump is. So, you know, I think it was basically a good night. Bill Galston, this was one of the most interesting midterms that I can ever remember, in part because it didn't fulfill the usual outline, right? That, okay, so if the president who is in power is unpopular, then his party is going to be badly punished by the voters in the midterms. That often happens, but it didn't seem to happen very much this time. People were able to tell pollsters, yes, I'm dissatisfied with Joe Biden's leadership, but they apparently drew a distinction between Joe Biden and Democrats running in particular races. That's absolutely true, Mona. It turns out that the way we were thinking about job approval wasn't fine-grained enough. If you look at it as a switch, approve, disapprove, then the results appear paradoxical. 
But if you break it down into strongly approve, somewhat approve, somewhat disapprove, and strongly disapprove, it turns out that Democrats did very well in that third category where people said that they somewhat disapproved of Joe Biden, but gave Democrats a four-point margin anyway. And what that tells me is that the disapproval of Biden didn't reach a sufficient level of intensity to get people who were open to the Democratic message to turn their back on it and say, okay, I'll vote Republican this time to send that guy on the White House a message he won't be able to ignore. The biggest surprise, and I think perhaps the most significant surprise, at least for me, was that it turns out that you can't tell the electorate what it is supposed to care about. As you know, early on, Mona, I thought that overturning Roe was a big deal. And like others, I was seduced into believing that the salience of abortion had faded in the fall. But that turned out not to be the case. 31% of people who voted said inflation was my number one issue. But guess what? Almost as many, 27%, said that abortion was their number one issue. And crime, the issue that was supposed to pulverize Democrats, trailed at 11%. And so it turned out that this was nearly as much of an abortion election as it was an inflation election. And if you break it down into the pivotal swing states, there were two states where significantly more people said that abortion was their top issue than inflation. No surprise in Michigan that they said that because of of the Michigan uh, referendum. But if you look at Pennsylvania, 36% of Pennsylvanians said that abortion was their number one issue compared to only 29% who said that inflation was their number one issue. So this was not the inflation uber alles election that everybody thought that it was going to be. And it was certainly not the revenge on candidates and Democrats who were, quote unquote, soft on crime election that people thought it was going to be. Yeah, Sarah, I want to come back to you on this abortion question. So um, there was a proposed uh, amendment to the state constitution in Kentucky that would have stated there is no right to abortion or any requirement to fund abortion in the state constitution. That was voted down. And it does seem, and I'd be curious to hear what your focus group insights would be about this, that voters were concerned about it. They hadn't forgotten about it, as Bill says. It had not receded to the background. And it's interesting that Ron DeSantis did so well. That's really a crushing victory. And you have to remember that in Florida, he backed a 15-week abortion limitation, which is much more moderate than a lot of other Republicans were proposing. Yeah, I think you have to look at Ron DeSantis kind of, you know, carving out that 15-week sort of compromise position as part of the reason he was so dominant. And it look, let me tell you about the focus groups in abortion because it's a it's been really interesting. We always ask, you know, how do you think things are going in the country? And people tend to use that time to talk about the things that they're most worried about. And they, you know, they say things aren't going well, they're concerned about inflation, they're concerned about crime, they're concerned about the economy, supply chain, whatever. And they very rarely mention abortion, even after the Dobbs decision. Sometimes it would come up at the top, but not that often. But then when you would go into, hey, your, you know, your race is between, uh, you know, Adam Laxalt and Cortez Masto, people would say, oh, well, I'm voting for Cortez Masto. And they would say, because uh, Laxalt's too extreme on abortion, like abortion would come up in their vote choice come up in the as the context in which they would describe the extremism of the individual candidates, whether it's why they thought Mastriano was crazy, uh, it's why they thought Tudor Dixon was crazy. Like Tudor Dixon got defined very early on by her position that she thought a raped 
young woman, you know, like a teenager should have to carry the baby to term. Now, every voter knew that about her. Every voter remembered it about her. And, and the other way that I would think about it is, you know, if you go back a year or so, I was spending a lot of time talking about how in the focus groups, there was a real enthusiasm gap between the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans were like, we want a revenge tour. You know, the last election was stolen. I want to go vote for any living, breathing Republican. And the Democrats were like, meh. Joe Biden's too moderate. Joe Biden's too progressive. We, I want this policy and this policy, you know, and they were just in a sort of a state of things. They were upset about COVID. And the thing that I saw abortion doing is really evening out the enthusiasm. Then they were kind of in a dogfight for independent voters, swing voters. And that's where the candidate quality really came in. And a lot of those swing voters just couldn't get there on these extreme candidates. And abortion is kind of baked into that extremism. Yeah. Um, Damon, so I think maybe last week when we were a little funereal, uh, <laughs> one of the things we were anticipating is how, you know, how the new uh, Republican majority in the House would behave. I mean, I think we have to say it is still likely that the uh, Republicans will gain the speaker's gavel, but they will do so more by the skin of their teeth than with any sort of commanding victory. And so do you think that changes the calculus about how they march in and start, you know, threatening people and, and investigating Hunter Biden? Well, I suppose that they won't be able to resist. Hunter Biden is in for it. But but what about the impeachments and what about shutting down the government and so on and so forth? Do you think this will sort of cow them a little or how do you how do you see it? Well, I'd love to think so, but I, I really have no reason to think that they'll be rational in that kind of a way. Like actually say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we, we didn't do very well here. Maybe we defied all of the historic trends uh, in this election by not doing very well because we're perceived as too extreme. Maybe we shouldn't risk default of the United States uh, over nonsense. Maybe we shouldn't impeach Biden for a cause that we'll invent halfway through the process of doing it. But again, I have no reason to assume they won't. Now, the question is, can they? And so I think more than them all getting together, and this is, by the way, assuming that we're right, that they actually will take the House, it still does seem, if you were going to be a betting person, that they will. But I, it is by no means certain. Uh, there are a lot of House races still out, a lot of them in California. A lot of the outstanding ones were ones that were pretty close and seemed to be leaning uh, to the Republicans, but that could very well end up in this kind of chaotic situation that we had uh, on Tuesday. It, it could end up that the Democrats win certain seats back and it ends up being that it stays in Democratic hands. So we don't really know. And that's amazing to think about in and of itself. But uh, aside from that uh, caveat I wanted to throw in, assuming they keep uh, control of the lower house, the problem is going to be that, again, I don't expect them to get together in a giant group and decide on moderation, but all they are, it's possible that they're, all they need is like six or 10 or a dozen members of the house in very swingy districts where they, you know, the, the member just either survived by their skin of their teeth or just won by the skin of their teeth. And they say, you know, I don't think this is going to help me when I come back up for re-election in two years if I act like a lunatic. So actually, I count me out. Uh, and in order to overcome that, you would need an extremely cagey, extremely powerful and persuasive uh, House Speaker and Whip to be wrangling votes. And, you know, if it's McCarthy, I don't really know that he has that skill. <laughs> I think it's much more likely what I thought was going to happen is that they would have a margin of 30 or more seats and that he would be pushed to do these things by the caucus. Uh, and he would just go along because he actually isn't that skilled at it and isn't that powerful. And so he'd be kind of dragged along into the circus. But but that could actually flip the opposite direction now. If it's only if they only have a margin of eight or ten seats, it doesn't take many to say, hey, you know what, I got cold feet about this. I'm not going to go along with this. And if that means that it's a little embarrassing, too bad, I want to keep my seat. I don't want to be yelled at my, by my constituents for the next two years and then lose. Uh, 
So that I think is more the dynamic we may see. The narrower the the majority, uh, the more that I think will come into play. Yeah. Linda, uh, let's just take a moment to consider the Fetterman-Oz race, which honestly I'm thinking is going to sort of become a staple of campaign school for the next several decades as people think about the implications of debates. Because anybody who watched that debate came away thinking, oh, gosh, he's toast. I mean, this was the worst performance I can ever recall seeing a poor thing. But still, you know, it was terrible. And uh, and as, as Bill was saying, you know, you can't tell voters what they should think is important. And the voters obviously took that on board, but said, yeah, never mind. Uh, I'm, I'm voting for Fetterman over Oz. And oh, by the way, I owe uh, Senator-elect Fetterman a deep apology. I <laughs> threw shade on his sartorial choices last week, uh, suggested he get himself a collared shirt. But, you know, as I was watching him and as I was listening to some of the analysis about the way in which he so successfully captured the nomination, my husband looked at him and said, you know, I think this guy, he, he appeals to working class men. He could easily be a Trumpster. I mean, if you just looked at him, if you saw him in the Walmart, you know, you might think he has, you know, was a Trumpster. Uh, the hoodie and the tattoos and the very working class appearance uh, had some appeal. He doesn't look like a member of the elite. And it turned out that when he was running, uh, in the primaries, he spent a huge amount of time in red counties, in red districts. Not that he hoped to switch them to Democrat, but he hoped to be able to garner a few extra votes. And it turned out, in, when you look at the analysis of how he won that primary, that paid off because on election night, as the various analysts went through and looked at each of the counties in Pennsylvania, it turned out that Fetterman outperformed Biden in those very counties. Now, maybe it was only a few dozen votes here, a few hundred votes there, but it all added up. So, you know, I do think that we do pay way too much attention to debates. Those of us who are sort of nerds, political nerds, and, you know, spend all of our time watching these things, we think everybody else does, but they don't. And we also think that because we're good talkers, that being a good talker is everything. Right. Well, yeah, I think uh, Donald Trump sort of proved well, that that's true. <laughs> wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, just he he was, you know, not uh, articulate, uh, still is not articulate, even less so today than he was in 2016. So anyway, so I think you're right about that. Uh, and I do think for Democrats to be able to reach union voters, to be able to reach the uh, working class male voters, this is absolutely vital uh, to their success in being able to hold on. And I think Fetterman, in some ways, showed them the way. Bill, yeah, we're not supposed to talk about the timestamp on, uh, on the podcast usually, but because of the election story unfolding, I'm going to break that rule this week. We're recording on Wednesday. The president is going to give remarks later this afternoon about the midterms. And so I, I realize this is putting you in a little bit of an awkward position, but not so much about what he's going to say today. But if you were advising Biden on the right and wrong lessons to draw from the midterms, what would what would your advice be? <sighs> no, there's a question I didn't expect to be asked, <laughs> but I'll I'll do my best. I guess I would say. Mr. President, you've dodged a bullet, but don't now leap to the conclusion that you're bulletproof. You have a very hard row to hoe between now and 2024, which may very well include a recession. It's very important when you make your remarks to talk not about the Democratic Party, not about the mechanics of politics, or don't play the pundit. Be frank about the problems that lie ahead of us. You know, speak soberly as the President of the United States to the entire country. 
Talk about, if you want, your relief that the threat to our democratic institutions appears to be significantly diminished, but don't take your eye off the ball. People are going to be listening very carefully to you to see whether they think you've gotten any message from this election and do your best to indicate that you have. This was certainly not a great democratic triumph. Disaster has been averted. Uh, But uh, we are still a deeply divided and narrowly divided country. And don't let these results distract your attention from that fundamental fact. That's the best I can do on short notice. (laughs) And now I'd like to turn to our next topic, the, the results now set us up to begin looking at the uh, outline of leadership in, the, in both parties for 2024. And Sarah, I'm going to start with you because the inevitable conflict between Trump and DeSantis began even before the votes were cast with Trump giving DeSantis a nickname, which is a giveaway that uh, he's girding for battle. And he even went further. He threatened an oppo dump on him and said, oh, I know things about him that no one else knows. So it's on, I guess, right? Or is DeSantis not up to the challenge? What do you think? Yeah, you know, uh, I did a long thread about this because I was getting very um – I didn't understand. There's a, there's a lot of uh, the NRO types, our friends, the anti-anti-Trumpers, they desperately need DeSantis to be the guy going forward. And last night did a lot to bolster the narrative that DeSantis, you know, could be that person. He dominated in his race while a lot of Trump's people went down. The thing is that if Donald Trump announces, there was a big difference between being kind of the big barking dog in your home state, yelling at kids about wearing masks and fighting with Disney and, you know, fighting with the media in your state. Like people in the focus groups, I'll say, and a lot of uh, the voters, there's a real appetite for DeSantis. They like him. They think he did COVID well. They like his culture war stuff. But I have not seen evidence that Ron DeSantis is a skilled enough politician to get in the ring with Donald Trump Go toe-to-toe. Donald Trump doesn't just try to win elections. He tries to humiliate you. He's a scorched-earth, terrible person. And Ron DeSantis is a 44-year-old guy who just won a dominating performance. And so, you know, there's there's this tension between picking your moment, and a lot of people want this to be his moment because they don't want Trump to run again, and saying, I don't know, do I want to have this guy, you know, humiliating me in front of this stadium crowds of people while I, while I try to build my political brand? And the thing that I think a big takeaway from last night, people are going to say, especially people with, uh, you know, a dog in the fight of, well, Trump is done. That's such a terrible performance for Trump. But that's a little bit of wish casting because you only have to go back a few months to the primaries to see Donald Trump get, with the exception of Georgia, just about every primary that he wanted. Here's the thing. Donald Trump owns the Republican base and the Republican base is quite large and it is large enough to essentially win most Republican primaries. He has an incredibly devoted following. They're actually quite scary and menacing when you actually challenge them. So it is not to me obvious that Ron DeSantis, who is sort of notoriously thin-skinned, has kind of a glass jaw, that he is ready to go toe-to-toe with Trump the way that Trump goes toe-to-toe with people. And if you go back and watch what he did to these guys in 2016, like their political careers never recovered. And so it's just, it's not a straightforward decision. And I think that for people who are saying like Trump's out, you know, the voters want to put him in the rear view. The general election voters want to put him in a rear view. It is not at all clear yet the primary Republican voters want to put him in the rear view. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And the pundits want to put him in the rear view for sure. And the anti-antis, as you say, uh, are desperate to do so. But yeah, I mean, that. so Damon, that's Sarah outlines what I think is the real nub of it, which is that looked at as a political science matter, you would say, oh, absolutely, this is DeSantis's opportunity and he should strike while the iron is hot and... Uh, But the fact is, when it comes down to a psychological battle between himself and Trump, a lot comes down to what kind of human being he is and whether he has the gonads, I'm sorry, to (laughs) 
<laughs> to 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 stand up to that kind of punishment and uh, meet it out. By the way, also, and and it's tricky for DeSantis because you know all of the post. Trump Republicans are going to want to say, I'm a loyal Trumpkin. I am the most Trumpy, Trumpiest person, but you should, you should choose me instead of him. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been wrong about things in the past. Really? I never have. In the last 24 <laughs> hours, I've been wrong about some stuff. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting. I saw Sarah's tweet thread where she made the case that she just uh, reiterated here. And, and I actually jumped in. And for a brief time, we were sort of both battling the same folks in the anti-anti crowd uh, on this issue. Because I, too, for my own reasons, without focus groups behind me, have tweeted and and kind of written things trying to think through how is it possible that we actually get to Donald Trump not being the nominee. I would like nothing more than that to be what happens. Uh, I find it amusing that the folks on the anti-anti side love to say the bulwark mockingly, and and because Sarah's so closely identified with the bulwark, they point to her and say, like, like it's a grift. Sarah needs clients to like be paying her money and therefore needs Trump to be the nominee so that she can thrive and same with the bulwark. And I just, my response is always, you're, you have no idea what you're talking about. There's nobody associated with the bulwark or Sarah who would like anything more than to snap our fingers and have Trump disappear from the political universe. And I am feel exactly the same way, but I just look at the situation. I said in the fall of 2015 that Trump was the front runner and he was going to win unless something changed and nothing changed. And that is exactly what happened. And at, as far as I'm concerned, I'm looking at the polls. Trump is at roughly 50 percent. DeSantis is at somewhere between 20 and maybe 30 in some of the now slightly discredited Republican-leaning polls. And so that means Trump is lapping him, and Trump hasn't even announced yet. He's sort of on the sidelines. I just, I, again, do I want to see? I don't like DeSantis. I would never vote for him in a million years, but I think he would be better for the country as a nominee than Trump, even if he's more likely to win the general than Trump, marginally uh, better. But what we would need to see is that events unfold over the coming months such that Trump goes down and DeSantis goes up. And when I think in my head, what series of events are going to lead that to happen and nothing comes to me, I don't see a scenario. Now, I will add as a kind of a codicil to this, our friend uh, Josh Barrow uh, jumped in in response to Sarah yesterday. And, and he said something interesting. He said in, in Sarah's tweet thread, she never talks about the most plausible scenario for, uh, for DeSantis. Which is he runs against Trump Fauci and says that basically Trump was a total wimp for the whole year of COVID and just allowed himself to be pushed around by uh, by the public health establishment. And I did it right. And Trump basically is is a wimp who lets himself be uh, bullied around by the, the would-be uh, public health tyrants. And, and if you want better governance, you want me. Can I actually ask Sarah, like, well, I didn't see you respond to that. Maybe you did. What do you think about that? Like, is that a plausible line of attack? Yeah, so I did respond to it. Um, and I said, it's interesting. You know, I, I think DeSantis could try that. I guess my skepticism around that is that COVID is quickly retreating as sort of the macro issue that's dominating people's minds. So I think that we just, this cycle right now, the votes that just happened, people can run on their records on COVID and people are getting punished or rewarded for the records on COVID and like it's going to happen this time. I feel like when we're another cycle out, I just don't know that that look back is going to be like the thing that is the differentiator. And I, I think one of the struggles that DeSantis is going to have is – like making COVID a singular issue in a campaign to differentiate yourself when it's now like a year in the rearview mirror. I don't know. But the, most importantly, the thing is, is like DeSantis is a 
is the pronunciation simulacrum. Like he is an, an imitator of Trump. He just he's this like slightly pale version of him. And like, okay, so so he can do that. And do you think that Donald Trump's not going to come back and be like, bro, I made you. Look at you standing there in your oversized suit and your sanctimonious crap. Like no one likes you. You're, you know, you're a joke. I don't know. And like, uh, maybe, okay. So like, I, I get that there's maybe one line of rational attack, but I just think that might be insufficient for what we've seen Donald Trump do. Donald Trump, this is a guy who said like, Ted Cruz's dad killed JFK and his wife is super ugly. <laughs> okay. So when he does those things to DeSantis, I watched DeSantis turn into like a petulant teenager and shout at the media and get really, you know, grumpy. Do, how does that play? Do, do, do Trump's voters say, boy, you know what? DeSantis is just so much more responsible and I love his policy prescriptions and that's just really great. Or do they say, man, Trump is clowning this guy so hard. It's great. I love this. It's so fun. Yeah, I think, I mean, my my brief response, I agree with all that. And I guess I, I would say that it all comes down to what it is that makes Trump's base love him. And the problem with a lot of pundits, including a lot of our friends on the anti-anti side who love DeSantis and see him as the kind of savior figure from Trump, is that they think that those voters who love Trump are movable by the same kinds of arguments that they themselves are, a kind of calculation that, well, yeah, you love him in the in the primaries, but he can't win in the general, and you got to want to win in the general. That's too rational. This is about loving to see Trump humiliate people. It's a visceral thing. It's sub-rational. And I think you're right that in the end, they probably, or they, even if they are humiliating DeSantis, they sort of like DeSantis, but if he does it with a kind of uh, with a typical Trumpian zing, they're going to clap. All right. Well, Linda, you know, in a different world, Republican voters would watch Trump's despicable humiliation of others and say, well, certainly don't want that guy because that's that kind of behavior is horrible. Um, but that's not the world we live in. And so while some Republican voters might look at DeSantis v. Trump and say, well, you know, DeSantis is young. DeSantis can serve two terms, whereas Trump is limited to one further term. DeSantis is not saddled with uh, having, you know, potentially broken the law in about 15 different ways uh, and facing possible indictments, et cetera, et cetera. You might do all those calculations, but then when Trump launches his fusillades in DeSantis's direction, the only thing will, that will matter is whether DeSantis seems like he's a man, whether he's tough, whether he can, I, I don't know. What do you think? Maybe, maybe there's nothing DeSantis can do, and maybe DeSantis won't run for that reason. You know, who knows what's going to happen <laughs> after this week? I don't think any of us should be making many predictions. I will say this. It is very hard for people like us to understand that what we hate most about Donald Trump is what his base loves most about him. It is all of the uh, grotesque behavior that he exhibits is actually what drives his base. That's what they love. So if he engages in that behavior, and if you have a primary, uh, and it isn't just DeSantis that's going to be running, it might be also Mike Pence and, and Mike Pompeo and who knows who else, uh, then Trump probably ends up emerging. On the other hand, Donald Trump this week made the promise that he is going to have a very big announcement on November 15th. And all of the assumption is that he is going to announce that he is running for president on November 15th. I mean, he is doing that for a reason. He wants to preclude the DeSantis's and others from getting in. But, you know, he's now getting some advice, even from his inner circle. Jason Miller, you know, has weighed in apparently on the BBC saying he thought it was a very bad idea for him to announce that he is going to run on November 15th. If Donald Trump makes that announcement, the big factor, again, is going to be Georgia, because it doesn't just look like uh, the Secretary of State who was reelected, Mr. Raffensperger in Georgia, has announced that there's going to be a runoff. That runoff is going to be taking place on December 6th. And as we saw, 
last time around, when this very same thing happened in 2020, that is the reason there is a Senator Warnock, is because Donald Trump was a factor in that election. And, you know, the Democrats had, I think, under anybody's estimation, a pretty good night considering historical records in terms of the number of seats that normally are lost during these uh, off-year elections by the party that holds the White House. I think that, you know, Democrats are going to be able to all join and they're going to be able to throw everything they've got into that Georgia race. So, you know, if Trump announces that he's running, And if that becomes a factor in uh, the Georgia runoff, and again, Donald Trump causes the Republicans to lose control of uh, the Senate, I think that is not going to bode well. So I'm still of a mind that Donald Trump uh, is beatable and that there are going to be enough people who are going to see him as uh, really a loser, which is what he is, and therefore, you know, we may in fact see somebody like DeSantis. So the reality TV title that should really belong to Trump rather than The Apprentice is The Biggest Loser. Absolutely. Uh, right. All right. So Bill Galston, you were saying earlier, and I'd like you to elaborate, that uh, the results from uh, the midterms sort of changed the outlook uh, for leadership in both parties. What did, what, what did you want to say about that? Well, Number one, I'd like to weigh in on the great should he or shouldn't he DeSantis discussion. And rather than making my own arguments, I'd like to summon two witnesses to the bar. One of them is Chris Christie. And the other is William Shakespeare. (laughs) You know, Christie can talk a lot, it seems to me, and very persuasively about what it means to miss your moment. But Shakespeare did it even better, you know, through his mouthpiece, Brutus. And I quote, There is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. But omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. Ron DeSantis is never going to have another moment like this one. And the question is whether he has the courage to risk it and the skill to fight his way through the risks. I don't know the answer to that question. But if I were advising him, ha, <laughs> I, would, I would say with all of the obstacles and uncertainties, Governor DeSantis, this is your moment and you must seize it despite all of the rational arguments that you've just heard in the past 15 minutes. Now, on the Democratic side, these results are going to greatly ease what otherwise would have been intense pressure on President Biden to stand aside uh, in favor of a fresh face. I think that the famous Democratic circular firing squad will not form up as usual in the wake of these midterms. And a lot of people are going to take note of the fact that Biden's job approval was not the single determining factor in Democratic votes, that he doesn't seem to arouse the same kind of intense, visceral opposition that other candidates with different demeanors often do. And I think now the choice as to whether to proceed is in his hands and will not be driven by the internal dynamics of the Democratic Party. That is a big change from a reasonable expectation 48 hours ago. Much has changed in 48 hours. All right. With that, we will turn to our final segment, our highlight or low light of the week. I will begin with Damon Linker. 
Well, this is going to be a little unusual, but my highlight of the week is simply American democracy. I I have to say, you know, uh, I I have this Substack, and uh, I will probably write about this at greater length on Friday. Um, but uh, it, it's quite amusing. I was writing yesterday on Tuesday while the votes were being cast, but had not been counted yet. A 1,500-word op-ed uh, for a major outlet whose name I shall not mention about how and why the Democrats screwed up and got whooped despite all the threats to democracy out there and so forth. You can you can write the piece in your own heads because we sort of were kind of hashing out parts of it on the podcast a week ago, and. The, the delightful thing is that uh, as my wife was going to bed last night and she doesn't watch politics like I do and she gets too too anxious about it and so prefers you know to only hear occasional good news. So she calls down while I'm watching the returns and says, how's it going? And I call up and I say, it's actually great. And I go through all these, all these results and say, it's much better than expected. Democrats are doing well. The worst of the Republicans are going down. And also my piece that I was writing all day, uh, that's going to be trashed. That's not going anywhere. It's it's written for a totally different reality that is not the reality we live in. And she said, if you telling me that, I would have thought that you'd be in a bad mood. And I said, ah, what's good for American democracy might not be good for my career for the moment, but I can live with it. And so it really is a humbling experience to spend your life looking at this churning, crazy cauldron of facts and data points, and to try to kind of get your grip on it and figure out what it all means and and where it's going and so forth, its meaning. And then you hold an election and the whole thing gets scrambled. And uh, that's pretty great. Uh, I'm delighted by, by what has happened the last 24 hours in America. Amen. Okay, Sarah Longwell. So bright spot, same general trajectory as Damon, which is the Secretary of State races. So if there was one thing that was keeping me up at night, it was the crazy caucus of election deniers who were going to be overseeing elections. Um, I already talked about this at length, but not only in the states that I've talked about now do we have, uh, you know, Democratic governor in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and in Michigan there was a like a QAnon crazy person named Christina Caramo, who was the Secretary of State nominee. She was defeated in Pennsylvania. The governor gets to appoint the Secretary of State. So Doug Mastriano will not have that honor. Josh Shapiro will. So, you know, great stuff for Secretary of States. But we are still waiting at this moment, right, for Nevada and for Arizona. But one of the best things coming out of Arizona is, look, Kerry Lake, and this is my low late. I'm going to just do both. My low late is that that Kerry uh, Lake may yet eke out a victory there in Arizona, but the Secretary of State that she was running with, who was a a like anti-Semitic election denier, much in the same vein as Kerry Lake, he is running like six points behind her, and the Democrat Adrian Fontes um, is is out kicking the other Democrats in the state, and so. Even if Carrie Lake wins, there will be a Democrat Secretary of State, which I think will blunt her ability to be just like the full-on crazy election denier that she is. Same story in Nevada, where this guy, Jim Marchant, uh, he's the head of the uh, America First Secretary of State Coalition, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's Trumpy Secretaries of State who thinks that everything was stolen. He is also running behind the other Republicans. And so we could end up with a pretty clean sweep on good secretaries uh, of state. And that is uh, huge for democracy and future elections. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Okay, Bill Galston. And now for something completely different. The rest of the world has not ceased to exist while we've been focused on the elections. Russia's defense minister announced a Russian withdrawal from Kherson, which is just a huge, huge victory for the Ukrainians, and a vindication of their strategy not to mount a head-on attack against Kherson, but to make it impossible for the Russians to remain by severing their supply lines. So after a staged dialogue between the Russian defense minister and the new Russian commander in Ukraine, Defense Minister Shoigu gave the order to withdraw. This is a turning point in the war, and uh, 
I hope it is the harbinger of many others. Wow. Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, Linda Chavez. Well, we've spent uh, quite a bit of time on the podcast talking about the Hispanic vote and the role that it was going to play. And there was a lot of fear uh, among some in some quarters that the Hispanic vote, particularly in South Texas, might uh, suddenly lurch to the right. Uh, and there is, I think, a lot more heterogeneity uh, in the Hispanic vote than people understand. But what we saw last night is that didn't exactly happen. So I want to point to an article. It's actually an old article. It was written last month in the Texas Tribune. It was called, For GOP Winning Hispanic Voters Will Be a Bigger Fight Than South Texas. And there are a lot of very interesting demographic data in there, including data that suggests that most of the uh, Hispanics who live in Texas don't live along the border. They live in uh, much more metropolitan areas by about uh, three to one. And even in those uh, South Texas districts, uh, we saw Henry Cuellar uh, was able to hold on to his seat, and even though he is under criminal investigation. We also saw that uh, Democrat Vicente Gonzalez defeated uh, Mayor Flores, who had won a special election, and she was the Republican. And uh, also we saw a different shift, a shift to the right in Texas 15, in which Monica de la Cruz became the first Republican to win that district. So I think the bottom line in that uh, Hispanic story is that Hispanics are not a monolith. Uh, They do not vote uh, entirely one way. And they're sort of still figuring it out. Oh, by the way, and in Florida, uh, Miami-Dade was able to elect a a Republican, again, a Republican Hispanic. So uh, Hispanics are still very much up for grabs and are sort of uh, shifting. Thank you. All right. I would like to, uh, like Bill, I'm uh, more focused on the rest of the world. In my uh, highlight, I want to mention a piece by Max Boot, uh, ran in the Washington Post. Putin just backtracked under pressure. That's a hopeful sign for Ukraine. This appeared a few days ago, but it concerned this you know, threat or, or announcement that Putin made that he was not going to abide by the deal that allowed Ukraine to export food through the Black Sea. Putin just sort of summarily announced that that was no longer going to be permitted, which of course would further impoverish and, and, and starve people in the third world who rely very heavily on Ukrainian grain exports. And then suddenly Putin, under pressure from Turkey and lots of other countries, just changed his mind and said, oh, never mind. He said, you know, and then he gave some fig leaf about how, well, he'd been assured that the Ukrainians were not going to use this as an excuse to attack Russian ships. Of course, they hadn't been doing that. But the point is that we are understandably aware of you know, Putin's dangerousness and the fact that he is in control of nuclear weapons and therefore a dangerous uh, person. Obviously, he's dangerous. He invaded another country. But the point is, though, that he is not 10 feet tall and you have to recognize that he does back down. It isn't always escalate, escalate, escalate. And that's an important lesson for our policymakers to keep in mind that, uh, yeah, Putin Uh, in a corner, sometimes backs down. He doesn't double down. With that, I want to thank our very special guest, Sarah Longwell. Our producer is Katie Cooper. Our sound engineer is Jason Brown. We thank them as well. And of course, we thank our wonderful listeners. And we will return next week as every week. 